and, and simply trying to do our best to teach you the meaning behind what's happening here. So that's going to take us in different journeys and different places. But here we are in this encounter, and, and what's happening here <clears throat> is, is really interesting because you have Jesus traveling through on his way back to Galilee, and he stops at this well while everyone else leaves. He's there alone, and he's approached by this, this Samaritan woman, or you could say he approaches her, and asks her for a drink. Now, I don't know <clears throat> how they could tell the difference between Samaritans and Jews just at first glance, but apparently they could. And it's important that you understand that although they share the same homeland and the same region and, and much of the same background, <clears throat> the Jews and the Samaritans were cultural enemies. They were taught to hate each other. And if you look back at history, it wasn't because there was a great big war between the two. It had to do with differences in their, in their lineage and a little bit of differences in their religious perspective. But whatever those differences were, the fact that Jesus engages this woman here is in some ways a sermon in and of itself. Because this is scandalous for Jesus to talk to this woman. Because first of all, the Jewish religious leaders taught that you know, the, the, there were three things that you didn't want to be in this life. One was a woman. One was a Gentile, okay, a non-Jew, but the, 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 the kicker to everything was a Samaritan. So if you were a, a woman, Gentile, Samaritan, man, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had zero love for you. As a matter of fact, it was the Pharisees that taught that the purpose of the, of the Samaritans and others like them was to keep hell hot. That's what they believed that God had in mind when he created the Samaritans. So for Jesus to, to go and interact with this woman, you know, she's of course put off by that because she says, you're not supposed to talk to me. I'm a Jew, or you're a Samaritan, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and, and we're not supposed to, to have conversations, so why are you talking to me? Let alone the fact that he asks her for a drink of water. So now there's that component of eating or drinking together, which, again, in Jesus' day, roughly, would, would have been, you know, terribly scandalous. But Jesus doesn't seem to care about that, does he? Because, as you see on your screen, Jesus values all types of people. That's the first thing that we can learn from this story, is that Jesus values all types of people. He doesn't put the same types of boundaries around groups of human beings that, that we do as, as human beings. He doesn't say, well, this person from this country or this heritage or this, uh, you know, religious perspective or whatever is outside of my, uh, you know, scope of love or value. So Jesus begins to reach out to everybody. And of course, as we look through the Gospels, we see Jesus is always in trouble with the religious leaders because of who he hangs out with, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's always the guy who's in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong types of people. But he doesn't seem to be bothered by that at all. You see, in fact, Jesus downplays their racial identity completely in favor of their, their spiritual unity under God. And that's where Jesus wants to put the focus in this story. So while she's talking about, well, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, and we worship on this mountain, and, and, and you worship in Jerusalem, Jesus basically takes the view that none of this worldly stuff that we get so worked up about means anything when you think about who we are in God's eyes. And, and of course, that theme continues because what we see, secondly, is that spiritual needs are greater than physical needs. So 
this woman is talking to Jesus, I think it's interesting that he asks her for a drink. He asks her for something. But then he tells her what he can offer her. Now, what she can offer him is in the physical realm. She can offer him a physical drink of water, which is something that he desires because he's tired and because he's thirsty. Jesus was human. He got tired. He needed to take a drink. He needed to stop. So that's what he's seeking from her, really all that she has to give. But yet Jesus comes with much to give. He comes offering her this eternal living water that in his view, would take away any need that she would have inside of her life. Now, one of the things that we see in in, in John's gospel especially is Jesus uses physical metaphors to make spiritual points or to highlight spiritual truths. And he does this often in John's gospel. And here's the the, the consistent theme. The human beings to, to which he is speaking or to whom he is speaking never seem to catch on what he's talking about. Now, it's obvious to us because we have, we have the Bible, we have 2,000 years of church history, we have commentaries. We know that when Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again, that he, didn't have to, that he wasn't talking about going back into his mother's womb. But of course, that's the first place where Nicodemus' mind went, wasn't it? When Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus says, how is that physically possible? This woman at the well, when Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and and who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she says, well, what are are you talking about? You mean I don't have to come back to get water out of this well? See, her mindset was, again, on the physical needs. And while physical needs are, of course, important, what Jesus has come to do is to highlight these spiritual needs that we have because God has a different view of you than you. Did you know that? God has a different view of you than you. See, our view is formulated and and controlled mostly by our cultural circumstances and our physical needs around us. We look at our lives and, and that's the way that we come to God, through the lens of our physical needs. Many of you are here today because you need something from God that has to do with your physical life. You, you might have a problem in a relationship that you want God to deal with. You might have, have trouble in your finances and, and, and you feel like, if I can get my life straightened out with Jesus, you know, maybe he'll help me out with that. Or, or perhaps you have a, a, a need for an illness to be healed or there's some strain in your life. You know, most of us show up to God with all of our stuff. And we usually start there, don't we? When it comes to what we want from God, we usually start with those things. I mean, most of our prayers, culturally speaking, are about our physical needs, aren't they? And those things are important, no doubt. But Jesus has a much broader view than the physical needs. You see, for Jesus, his priority isn't what happens in this life and for these bodies. Jesus' priority is always on the more holistic view of humanity. You see, God created humanity to exist eternally. You are not simply a body with a soul. You are better said to have, you are a soul that has a body. So for the brief amount of time that you occupy this body and this 
particular place in the, the, the course of human history, you know, we have these needs, but that is just a sliver in who you are as a creation and who you are and your existence. And God sees that. God knows that. So therefore, Jesus is always talking about downplaying the physical reality and, and in favor of emphasizing the spiritual reality. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. It's a perfect analogy just in his own existence. He, he left heaven to come down to earth, and, and his priority, of course, was not on the physical world. So he, he became a lowly baby born in a manger to poor parents in a working class outpost called Nazareth that had nothing going for it. And for 30 years of his life, Jesus was poor and worked hard and, and, and had a mother who had a stigma attached to her because, remember, she had Jesus, or she was pregnant with Jesus before she was married. And I don't think anybody was buying the whole Holy Ghost con- conception thing at that time, right? So Jesus did not have an easy earthly life. It wasn't until around this time that things began to change for him. And some people began to notice him. And, and he began to experience some notoriety. But notice he never used that for his own personal gain. His mission was to serve, not to be served. Jesus wasn't concerned at all with worldly riches or with worldly or earthly comforts. So any moment that he has to engage with a person, he engages them on a spiritual level. Now, we always start with our physical needs, but Jesus says the spiritual needs are more important. So I want to ask you, what would your life look like? And ask myself, what would my life look like if the spiritual realm and the spiritual needs that I have were a far greater significance and priority to me in my life than my physical needs. What would my life look like? What would your life look like? You see, in many instances, we've been bought, we've bought this lie, and I, I don't know where it comes from. It's kind of the North American modern Christianity of the day that wants us to believe the opposite of this. It wants us to believe that Jesus has come here to this earth to, to give you a great life right here, right now. You know, the most popular preachers of our day are the ones that speak of this. The most popular preachers of our day are the ones that want to give you the secret to having a great life here on this earth, to having health and wealth and prosperity, and and having all of your relationships in perfect order, and to have the perfect existence and the perfect life, and Jesus has come really to enhance your life and to give you this amazing experience while you're on this earth. Now... I can understand the appeal of that because I want to have an amazing experience while I'm on this earth. But we have to be real about this. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the life that Jesus led. That's not where where we find the trajectory of the experience of, of the early church and of the apostles and of Jesus. It doesn't head that direction at all, does it? In fact, it heads in quite the opposite direction. It seems like the more and more you emphasize your spiritual existence, it isn't that your earthly life becomes horrible. It's just that you don't care as much about the things that everybody else does in this life. You're not concerned with with what shall we eat, what shall we wear, where shall we live, what shall we drive, how much money is in our bank account, those type of things. Did we win the trophy? Did Did we get everyone's respect? Do we have all of these things that we spend so much time and energy concerned about? It isn't that we, that we think those things are evil or bad or don't care about them anymore. It's just that when they stack up against the reality of Christ, we recognize 
that they're nothing compared to Jesus. So Jesus is always doing that. So I'll tell you what, I don't want to waste my experience with Jesus. Having him focused on my life, right? On my stuff, on my body. I don't want to waste that. I want Jesus to, to spend his time with me renewing my mind. And, and, and regenerating my heart and, and making me more like Him. And whatever happens in this life, glory to God. But I understand, this, this life is not the point. It's not the point. And this is what Jesus will highlight over and over and over again throughout John's Gospel. We'll see that when we move into to chapter 6 and we talk about Jesus being the bread of life. When we see him talking about whoever eats my, ble- my, my flesh and drinks my blood will have life eternal. People were scandalized by that too. <clears throat> How can we do that? We're going to study that. We'll see that when we, when we get to John 10 and Jesus talks about, I'm the good shepherd. You know, you are my sheep. People, some people would be offended by that, right? Sheep were the dumbest animals on the, on the planet back then. And Jesus said, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. I'm the door. I'm the gate. He uses all of these physical things to point to the greater reality. And that's certainly what he's doing here. But make no mistake, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about your life or my life or what we go through. He he intensely cares. And we see that here in this conversation with this woman. Because after Jesus makes this statement to her, you know, about this drinking this water that he gives them. And she says, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back here again. She's still not quite there. Now Jesus begins to take this this theological idea and now he brings it right to her front door, doesn't he? He says, go get your husband. And this woman's like, I don't have a husband. But that's all she says to him. But yet because he's Jesus, he knows more than that, doesn't he? And he knows this woman has had five husbands and is with a man now that she's not currently married to. Clearly, this woman has a story to tell, doesn't she? There's a lot going on in her life. She's been through a lot of experiences. You don't go through five husbands and are on number six without some, some, you know, probably some strife in your life and some hurt and some rejection and some sin, perhaps. But that doesn't stop Jesus does it? It doesn't stop him from reaching out to her right where she is. See, here's the thing we have to understand about Jesus. He reached out to this woman despite the cultural religious objections, despite all that, despite her situation, he reached out to her right where she was. See, Jesus is concerned about our individual situations. He cares about your life. Don't misunderstand what I said earlier to think that he doesn't care about what's going on in your life. He cares deeply because he cares about you. Now, I think the mistake a lot of us make when we start to think about where our, our, the situations of our lives intersect with the truth of Jesus is a lot of us think, wow, I get the whole Jesus thing. He's awesome. He's holy. He's God. And we recognize that I'm not. And some of us might feel like, well... Be that as it may, I don't really have a a good place with Jesus, do I? I I'm not good enough for Jesus. I'm not ready for Jesus. I'm not sure if, if he would accept me. See what this woman experiences. 
Jesus comes to her. He initiates contact with her. He offers her this living water. And she hasn't done a thing to earn it, has she? She hasn't changed a thing about her life, has she? See, here's where we get this wrong in our ideas. We think that it's up to us to conform ourselves and our behavior and our mindsets around Jesus so that, so that we can receive this living water from Him or so that we can be, be good enough to worship Him. But the Scriptures teach us and this interaction teaches us that it isn't us that need to, 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 to do the work of conforming ourselves. It's Jesus who comes to us. It's Jesus who approaches this woman just as she is, just where she is, in spite of everything she's been through. He comes to her and He says, I've got something for you. And what I have for you isn't about your life here being awesome. What I have for you transcends all of those needs. It transcends them all. Because I'll tell you something. As a woman who's been through five husbands, she's learned a few things about patterns of behavior, I suspect. And Jesus sees her the way she is. You know, Jesus does that. He looks at each of us right where we are. When he talks to the rich young ruler, he talks about money. Right? When he, when he encounters religious people, he talks to them about religious issues. And when he encounters this woman who's had five husbands and is on number six, he talks to her about thirst, doesn't he? He talks to her about this idea of, I've got to come out here every single day to get my needs met. I suspect there's a deeper layer of meaning behind that in this woman's life. i got to keep coming back to this or to that or to this person and that doesn't work or to this person and that doesn't work or to this person and that doesn't work. And Jesus sees this pattern in her life of constantly seeking that which cannot satisfy. And he says, if you would just come to me and receive what I could give you, then that thirst that you have in that soul that you think a man can fulfill you'd recognize that can be quenched by the Messiah, by the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I can, that'll preach right there. I mean, I can hear that in my own life. I can see that in my past. I can, I can feel that in my soul, how oftentimes I'm drawn into patterns of thought that require me to keep going after things in my life to fulfill a need, and those things don't work, but yet we keep doing them, right? It's what uh, one of our favorite pastors, Matt Chandler, calls the the cul-de-sac of stupidity, okay? The cul-de-sac of stupidity is this, more, more of what doesn't work will work. More of what doesn't work will work. That's what we believe, so we just get on that cul-de-sac, don't we? We keep going round and round and round, coming back day after day after day after day, and it doesn't work. And our answer is to just keep going after it far, faster and more and more. But what Jesus is saying is, look, it's time for you to get out of that cycle of continual thirst. It's time for you to find that which will give you an eternal quenching of that thirst. And it's not about your physical circumstances. It's about this living water. So Jesus is concerned about our individual situations, no doubt. Well, then the, this conversation you know, changes a little bit. And she says to him, Sir, I can see that you are our prophet. So now she wants to talk a little bit about, about church stuff and about worship. And okay, if you're close to God, then answer me this question. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is Jerusalem. So now she's asking him this religious cultural question. And she's like, all right, what's the answer? And I love how Jesus' answers always are to questions that we're not asking, but better questions that we should ask. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, that's a huge statement right there, okay? Because the Jews were all about their land and that city and everything was all about that. And Jesus basically says, that's not the point. But listen to what he says next. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So, you know, Pastor Mike and I... um, we read a lot of church growth books and the staff, we do the same thing. We're, all, we're, we're kind of students of the church culture and the church world. And there's various degrees of, of opinion on what church is supposed to be about on Sundays, right? And some people have the view that when the church gathers on Sundays, it's to be this like incredibly... Uh, structured and rigid and formal and, you know, uh, ancient practice that never changes, right? We'll call that high church. That's what that's referred to in the church world, high church. And the, the reasoning behind that is that, well, this is what's holy and right and pure, and, and, and this is the way it's been for 2,000 years, and that's the way it should be. Um, some of you might have, have attended churches like that. You know, my, my wife was raised Catholic, so she has experience in that. Um, and I, I hadn't until maybe 15 years ago. And I started to, to make friends with some people who were, who were in, church, in, a, in the Catholic church, and they invited me to, to a worship service, you know. So I went. I didn't have a clue what was going on, right? I didn't know whether I was supposed to kneel, stand, sing, listen, whatever. This, I mean, it was, I was confused, right? Well, then they said, you know what? You, you just need to learn more about it. So I started to learn more. I actually got invited to go on a spiritual pilgrimage to Rome, and to uh, Croatia with 30 Catholics and a priest. So it's kind of like, you know, 30 Catholics, a priest, and Pastor Keith walk into the, the Vatican, right? <laughs> what happens next? So we went, you know, and, and I'm there, and I'm just trying to soak it all in, right? And, and, and I, I found some, some, some moments of worship in that because I, I, as I got to understand what it was, it took me a while. I started to, to okay, I see where this, is, where this is from and how this is okay and all that kind of stuff. But... I have other friends, and this has kind of been more my experience, who have taken a completely different approach when it comes to church on Sundays. And they've had the mindset that church on Sunday is supposed to help the people in the community that don't know about Jesus find out about him. So the emphasis has been to create Sunday worship gatherings that are appealing to people in the community who, who don't normally attend church. And there's been whole movements of, of church that are revolved around this, and plenty of churches that this is their philosophy. So they design their worship services in their church, you know, to appeal to, to those outside of the faith. So, you know, what do people, what do all humans like? We like coffee, right? We like, you know, parking, right? Yeah, we're in trouble here. Um, so... <laughs> 
I've been to church where you walk in, someone hands you a cup of coffee, there's a valet in the front, they take your car, park it for you, they walk you in, and, and I mean, you're greeted warmly, and you sit down, they're giving you stuff, and, and you know, and, and we're not talking about those Methodist coffee mugs that, you know, we give, right? We're talking about like, you know, you get like one of those tumblers from Starbucks. And, you know, it, they roll the red carpet out. They design the service so that people won't be, won't be you know, confused. So they, they, they tone down some of the churchy language. They take the cross out of the sanctuary. They don't call it a sanctuary. It's now just called a, a family life center or, or a worship center or an auditorium, right? And, and the, the music is, is designed to, to prepare the person for an emotionally driven message, that's going to give them some kind of truth about how their life can be better. And, and you know, they'll sprinkle a little Jesus in there. And, and the idea is, well, there are people out there that are what we call seekers. And they're seeking Jesus, right? So we have to make sure that it's palatable for them. Now, let me just lay all my cards on the table. I, I'm, you know, I'm a Methodist, so I'm like a combination of all sorts of things. I can't ever just figure one thing out, right? That's how good Methodists are. We're everything, Okay. So I think there's elements of, of both that I appreciate and agree with. You know, I think I, there's something to me about the power of an ancient type of worship experience that's universal to the Christian church for 2,000 years. <clears throat> but I also think that it's important to be able to speak to people right where they are in a way that they can relate to and understand. But here's the thing that, that, that struck me as I read this, this, uh, this text is Jesus does talk about seekers in worship. <clears throat> only what he talks about is the fact that it is God who is the seeker. That God is the one who is seeking worshipers. So I started to think about what would it look like for God to walk in the back door or the front door of our church, not seeking, you know, an awesome experience or whatever, but just seeking worshipers. What would that look like for God to walk into our church? What would he think? How would he respond? See, Jesus says that this is what God is doing. He is seeking worshipers. But he doesn't just say any kind of worship will do. He says there's two components. Two components to the worship that God is seeking. And the first one is this. He's seeking worshipers who worship in spirit. He's seeking worshipers who worship in spirit. Now, to me, what that means is, is that your worship comes from the deepest part of you. It means that you're, that you're present in worship. Now, now, there's two components to being present in worship, right? There's the present that means, yeah, my butt is in a pew. I'm sitting here. I showed up today. I'm present. You got to have that, right? But what do people say sometimes? Well, I, I can't be with you physically, so I'll be with you in spirit, right? What does that really mean? It just means that whatever you wanted me to go to is not at the top of my list. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I think it's good, but I ain't going to be there right? I'm, worship, I'm with you in spirit, right? But then there's also people who, who say, hey, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't come to church because I got to go do this, but I'm with you in spirit. But then there's others who say, well, I can come to church physically. I can sit there, but I am not really present. You know what I mean? I'm not really there mentally or emotionally. I don't sit there, but don't ask me to, you know, sing a song or listen I'll come because, you know, my wife's dragging me here. My husband makes me come or, or my, you know, I got kids now, so I got to be a good dad. So I'm coming to church, right? You know, I'll do that. But, but don't expect anything more out of me. Don't expect me to pay attention or to really involve myself in the experience of what's going on. 
Don't, don't expect me to engage my heart. See, this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, God wants both. He wants people to show up, but he wants people to be fully and completely engaged in their worship. And, and nothing is more frustrating to Jesus than when they're not. Nothing's more frustrating to Jesus than when people show up to worship, but don't really show up, if you know what I'm saying. In Matthew 15, he's, he's commenting on some of the religious folks of the day. And he says this, look, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Think about that. Their lips are moving. They're saying the right things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or whatever it is that we say in church. But it's not just enough for our lips to move, is it? You know, it, that might satisfy the humans in your life. But it certainly doesn't satisfy the true and living God. Because he sees through all that. Remember, his focus, his emphasis is not on the physical. It's on what's going on. Where is your soul? Where is your heart? It's not enough to move your lips. Bring your heart to God in worship. That's what he's seeking. He says in Matthew 6, And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You know, in the King James it says, don't use vain repetitions, you know. Just saying the words over and over and over again doesn't mean anything. God does not hear your prayer or my prayer if all it is is just some babbling and some vain thing that we do because it's that time in the service to do it. If our heart's not engaged, it doesn't, it doesn't bring us into that worshipful place. So what I want to do is compare this with a, a text I found in in the Old Testament, in Psalm 42, with what I would consider to be, you know, really present worship. Psalm 42, the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You see, there's this anticipation of being physically present in worship. This psalmist is saying, when can I go? I want to be with God. But this need that he has deep in his heart is the same need that, that a deer has for water, that a human has for, for, for nutrients and for sustenance with, with our bodies, with that water brings to us. And you know what it's like to be really thirsty, don't you? You don't want food, you don't need stuff, you just want a drink of water. And that's the experience we should all enjoy when we come to worship Jesus. There should be nothing that stops us. There should be nothing more important. There should be nothing higher on the priority list. We should be like the psalmist. When can I go? When can I go? What day is it? When will it be here? When can I worship the living God with all my heart? Because I thirst deeply in my life for Jesus. I thirst. It's the same as this woman. She thirsted. But it's not just enough, according to Jesus, to have heartfelt, spirit-led worship or whatever with all of your spirit. You see, many people worship in spirit. Many. But not all worship Jesus. Not all worship who they're supposed to. So that's why Jesus says the Father's looking for those worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. You can't have one without the other. They're, they're married together. 
Now, this woman, she's a Samaritan. She has her religious customs of the day. And they're different from the Jews. And when Jesus comes to her, he says, look, this is the deal. You're, you're worshiping something that you don't even know, but here I am. Here I am. It's not just enough to have genuine, sincere worship. It has to be pointed in the right direction. Otherwise, it becomes idolatry. Otherwise, it becomes idolatry. Now, the, the ancient Near Eastern world and Middle Eastern world was full of idol worship. So everywhere you went there in these towns, there were temples and there were, there were uh, pagan uh, idols and, and, and things like that. And people would go and sacrifice these. And Jesus says, look, that's, it's great that you're sincere, but let me point that sincerity in, in the right direction. Because if you don't have truth behind your worship, then ultimately you're not experiencing the fullness of what Christ has for you. There's a, a story I want to share with you as I, as I close here in... In the book of Acts, chapter 17, this is when the Apostle Paul goes to Athens. He goes to Greece on this journey, and he encounters this culture. And in this culture, it's, you know, you've seen pictures of, of Athens in the ancient world. It's filled with temples. And he goes and he stands in the middle of this place where everyone around... Now, these aren't church people, okay? These are the Gentiles. These are people who are idol worshippers. These are pagans. These are, these are people who are, are very zealous in their religion, But Paul goes to them and here's what he says. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For when I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, Though he is not far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, Paul goes to this culture and he says, look, I I appreciate your religious devotion, I appreciate the sincerity of your hearts. Now let's point it in the right direction. Now let's point it in the right... I think he could say the same exact thing to us here today. I think he could say the same thing to the city of Marion and Cedar Rapids and the state of Iowa and our our whole culture. I think he'd look at us and say, man, we are dedicated people at whatever it is that we do. You know? For crying out loud, I danced on a stage last night in the Linmar Auditorium for Parent Show Choir. Okay? I was dedicated. You should have seen me. I was good. Right? 
And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But we're dedicated in all that we do. But let's focus our dedication ultimately and supremely on God. The one, and I love how he says this, even to these these pagan Greeks who've never heard of Jesus before, he says to them, God is not far from you. He's right here with you. He's not far off. Saying, just get that devotion that you have and point it towards God. Hey, get that devotion that you have towards whatever it is that's in your life that you love more than anything. It doesn't mean you have to to say goodbye to it unless it's sinful. But point that devotion toward Jesus. Jesus should be more important to you than, than golf or than scrapbooking or than soccer or than music or than taking pictures or then insert whatever you or I love to do more than anything. Those things are all great. He's given us all things, the scripture tells us. But he's supreme over all things. We worship in spirit and we worship in truth. And we see this woman who encountered Jesus with that thirst that all those things have been sent to fulfill. And she finds it in him. May you and I do the same. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful interaction that we see between you and this woman, Lord. God, it parallels our lives so, so often how we continue to seek for things, Lord, that never satisfy when all the while you're right here in front of us. So, Lord, may we drink from your living water and may we become worshipers, God, who are fully present in every way, shape, or form because we know you are seeking that. God, may you find a home here with us at Marion Methodist. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.